everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pension Trends Plus with Atara, bringing you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your portfolio, and some life stuff as well. I'm Atara Hershtorsky, securities class action attorney at AF&T in New York City. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Ari Gabinet to my show. Ari is a senior fellow in international and public affairs and legal expert in residence at Brown University. Ari is also the former general counsel of one of the largest mutual funds, Oppenheimer Funds. Ari has had a long and respected career in the securities litigation world on both sides of the fence. For 20 years, Ari worked for prominent international law firms and then switched sides and ran the SEC's Philadelphia office, managing a staff of over 100 lawyers and finance professionals in the enforcement and regulatory program. After leaving the SEC, Ari spent five years in Vanguard's legal department before becoming general counsel at Oppenheimer. So Ari is someone who really understands the institutional and mutual fund world. Ari is married to Christina Paxton, president of Brown University. In his spare time, he builds guitars, loves to surf, and is studying jazz guitar. Welcome to my show, Ari. How are you today? I'm great, Atara. It's so good to hear from you. Oh, it's great to have you on. You know, Ari, you and I go back several um, years because in your role as GC, you retained me and my firm, and we just kind of immediately hit it off. And it's also very important to note that my youngest daughter shares your name, Ari. So we've always had a special affinity, right? Absolutely. You were, you were quite, quite bold in marketing AF&T services at Oppenheimer Funds. Well, I hope, I hope we did a good job for you. Well, I have to say, you know, the, the verdict was unanimous. Uh, I, I don't remember the precise percentage, but our, certainly our class action collections for the funds went up by a significant percent. It was an interesting sell with the fund boards, uh, as you know, who had to approve these contracts for service providers. But the SEC had focused on whether funds were doing enough in collecting class action recoveries for the funds. And it was a, um, an important thing for the board to consider. So they were overjoyed when we actually were able to produce an increase, significant and measurable increase in our collections as a result of the work that you guys did for us. Yeah, thank you. Well, that that is, you know, what we try to do. That's one of the things we try to do. And I actually, I really do want to talk about that more globally for for funds and mutual funds and institutional clients generally. You know, there is this notion that, you know, if you're a large mutual fund or an institution, you know, there's a department that is filing your claims. And of course, they're being filled out properly because it's not as complicated as one might think. So obviously, you're getting all monies back that are due to you in class actions lawsuits. And that's not actually the case, is it? I, I can't say that the, I, it's kind of a middle office activity. And I can't say that it was being done with a particular um, amount of vigor. I don't know what the magic was that you guys had, or how it was that you were able to increase collections the way you did. But I think that there was a, a sort of a general lack of awareness in the portfolio management world of the extent to which things other than the raw selection of component securities could enhance returns. So for example, uh, it was sort of disastrous in the end of, in 2008 when funds realized that securities lending had been a yield increaser and then there were the great losses on the collateral for securities lending. But um, right. the idea that there are non-portfolio selection ways of increasing yield is something that 
fund portfolio managers historically didn't think about as much. They saw themselves just as stock pickers. But we know now that things like, um, well, for example, a number of fund complexes have become leaders in investing in IPOs or right. actually even in privates um, right. before they become IPOs, which is a way of accessing non-correlated returns and enhancing returns, although not without a certain amount of risk. So the litigation aspect can be just as important. And I know that I know that your firm, for example, does a lot of um, plaintiff side work representing institutional investors as opt-outs and opt-out returns can actually be significant for funds, depends on the size and scale of the fund. But portfolio managers have an inherent resistance to going in that direction because it distracts from what they think of as their primary obligation, which is selection of component, uh, component securities. Right. And, you know, I'll posit even further that it's not only a distraction to them, but I think somehow they are... Um, I'm not going to say scared, but there's sort of like a conflict when you start to bring in an attorney. Like they think uh, there's an attorney here. There was some loss in the portfolio. They're coming after me. And that's completely not the case, right? Like portfolio managers were defrauded just as the general public were defrauded. So we as, you know, securities class action attorneys, we're never going after the managers. We're always going after the companies themselves and often the CEOs who, who've can, you know, engaged in, in fraud. But I think that the portfolio managers get, you know, somewhat nervous until they fully understand that we're actually on the same side. Yeah. Um, there is a certain amount of defensiveness anytime there's a security with a loss. But, right. you know, the opportunity to recoup it is is important. They just, it's portfolio managers want to do it with, with a minimum interruption of their busy schedules. Many of them are on the road a lot, or they used to be before right. our current pandemic situation where they were on the road a lot. And they didn't want to be forced to sit down, for example, as a, an opt-out plaintiff to sit down for a deposition, to right. force to review their documents and to spend time with. Now, I will say that the warmth and friendliness of the relationship between the portfolio management teams and the legal department has a big role in this. So <clears throat> the more your portfolio managers like and trust your lawyers, the more cooperation you get in these kinds of things. Let's talk for a moment about your role at the SEC, because you, you've had such a distinguished career in the securities litigation world. And as I said, like coming from various angles and various sides. So I'm really curious about what you did at the SEC and, and how the how that helped you then transition into the mutual fund world. Well, the first thing that I did at the SEC was try to understand SEC practice. It was, okay. you know, I was an outsider. I had been a private civil side securities defense litigation person. And although my firm had a long history of both engagement with the enforcement division, less so with the enforcement division, but really with the division of investment management, Deckard's, Deckard's IM practice goes way back to 1975 with Alan Mostov, who was then the director of the division of investment management. Um, but I didn't know Jack about SEC practice. And the, the Philadelphia office was something of a mess at the time, at least the Wait, Washington. so back up for me one second, just, you know, maybe others will be curious as well. So you didn't really have a background. How did you actually get that position? The gentleman who had been the head of the Philly office of the SEC left and took a position with Wachovia Securities. So the position was open. Okay. And we had a long chain of people who had been involved at the SEC. And one of my partners had left the firm to go and was at the time the director of the Division of Investment Management, Paul Roy. And he, knowing that we were based in Philadelphia, 
he wrote to me and the other co-chair of the securities department at Deckard and said, somebody from the firm ought to take this job for the SEC in Philly. Wow. And I was at a point in my career where I was looking for new opportunities and new ways to expand my professional experience. And my wife was very gainfully employed at the time at Princeton. And so I just rose my hand and I, I raised my hand and I said, you know, I want to do this I, because it was, the, it was the kind of thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a people management and leadership role. That was what I was looking for. Um, and because the Philly office was looking for a reinvigoration of its leadership and management at the time, it was a rare moment when the SEC was looking for an outsider or somebody who was not from the Department of Justice. They usually take either people within the commission or U.S. attorneys or AUSAs to take over these office head roles. Um, so I was fortunate to be the right person at the right time, but I got, you know, I got dropped in and I had no clue what most of this stuff that they did was. I mean, I knew, I understood the issues. I understand securities fraud, but their practice with cease and desists and, you know, industry bars and things like this, were, it was nothing that I had ever experienced before. Okay. It was like a new language. It was all a new language. And, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of hostility to me as an outsider at the beginning. But fortunately, one of the, the two senior people in the office was a classmate of mine from law school. And she wasn't Joy Gaines was her name. And she wasn't just a classmate. She and I had sat next to each other in every class first year because of the oh, wow. medical relationship. And Joy was wonderful to me and really helped me. And then um, as time progressed, I developed a really strong relationship with the other senior person, Mary Jo Gillette, who was on the litigation side. And Mary Jo actually ultimately became the head of the SEC's Chicago office and then went to Morgan Lewis. But um, it, it was a bit of an indoctrination by fire um, to go and to take over that office. And then, you know, in 2002 wasn't such a, it was a huge year for accounting fraud, but 2003 was when all hell broke loose in the mutual fund industry. Yes. We, we were actually one of the leading offices in, in the mutual fund trading scandals, um, along with the New York office and the LA. Wow. So I want to ask you about that because, you know, the SEC, it's a government agency. It's tasked with regulating the security markets, but they, they can't do it alone, right? So what, having been also in the mutual fund world, what is your position on, you know, I, th I think you touched on it a little with opt-outs, but on shareholders really taking a stand, even when it's difficult. I mean, how does the interplay of the fiduciary obligations come in and knowing that they, they have to be enforcing just as the SEC, but in, in the private way? You know, it's hard for me to, first of all, one of the issues that got the SEC interested in looking at how the big fund shops behave in this space is the potential conflict of interest between their roles as plan, uh, retirement plan managers, you right. know, the plan providers and record keepers. And they, they have often that role for large corporations that are portfolio companies in the funds. And so the, the commission worries that there's a conflict of interest. Okay. And it's super important on behalf of your fund shareholders that the interest of the management firm, which is providing that, uh, you know, that plan record keeper, those plan record keeper services, that the, that that conflict not interrupt or detract from the firm's obligation the to to manage the funds in a way that maximizes returns. Now, it's hard to say that 
a fund has a fiduciary obligation to pursue litigation, right? Um, and it's it's never the fund's obligation to sue if it thinks that that's not the best use of portfolio management time and energy. But it does represent a significant opportunity. And depending on the size of the record keeping business and the identity of the companies, you have to be pretty alert to portfolio managers or to, um, to the finance side of the firm as opposed to the fund saying, look, we, don't, we just don't want to get sideways with Coca-Cola. Okay, they're one of our biggest record keeping right. clients. So please tell Mitch Tversky as much as we love him and his firm that we are not going to be the opt-out plaintiff and a suit against Coca-Cola because they're just too important to our record keeping. We do, you know, X million. So that's something that you really, really have to worry about. And in fact, right. if you ever hear that, you're almost in ensuring that the next step is going to be counsel is going to say, well, now that you've said that, we actually have to be the opt-out. <laughs> exactly. So. There's a fine line that you're walking between doing what you need to do and saying this isn't an obligation. That's really a fine line. Yeah. And, but my experience is for the most part, and maybe this is just a function of where I worked, right? I mean, when you work at the most reputable shops, you know, Vanguard clearly having, because of its structure, a low conflict of interest environment. Um, I, I didn't find that the firm's management was ever reluctant to play that role for any reason other than what, what, what use of resources will it be? Okay, so sometimes, now this is actually, this is pretty dangerous, right? If, Okay. If, if the firm says, well, we could get a decent return for our fund if we did that. For example, we can get, if we're as an opt-out plaintiff, you know, we, we stand to make between 15 million and 30 million as opposed to collecting, you know, 80, $800,000. Right. Uh, but that means that our legal team is going to have to spend, divert time from its ordinary resources. And, you know, we're going to have to do document production. And none of that is good for the the firm except to the extent that we derive our you know 60 basis points off the increase in assets under management and that fund which is almost hard for us to see but what we do see is that all of a sudden our lawyers are going to be busy working on something that isn't directly for the benefit of the firm as opposed to the fund that's a really dangerous situation to be in and actually i've been in that situation and had that situation with um cfo who ultimately said okay i get it Right. We can't have that can't be our conversation. That's a conflict of interest. But you'd be surprised how important it is for general counsel to have a spine on these kinds of things, because your CFO will often be arguing with you. Look, you know, this is just this is not good for our finances. And you have to say, right. sorry, we have a fiduciary obligation to the fund. And now that you've said that you've backed yourself into a corner. It's right. hard to be that it's hard to be that general counsel, but you have to be that general. Yeah, well, I have to say, I really respected you as general counsel because you are somebody with spine. You also understand the issues. And I think, um, you know, strangely, a lot of GCs don't understand. And once they do understand, it does make sense to them. And I do find the culture is changing um, around opt-outs, around even being lead plaintiff, which, you know, really takes a lot to take a stand on, on that angle. But I do find the culture changing because I think that everybody's understanding that this is a legitimate and important way to change the scope of your portfolio. And, and that takes me a little bit to derivative cases, because especially when you can begin to you know, increase the value of a company through a derivative action. Um, what are your thoughts on that? 
on getting involved in that as, as a fund and institutional client? You know, I never had the, the occasion to do that. Um, where, where I've seen it more is sort of in, in the hedge fund world, where hedge funds decide that what they want to do is to take positions in derivative actions, particularly in appraisal cases. Right. Uh, and it used to be that appraisal cases were a sure shot, but you know the Delaware Supreme Court has made it a little bit more complicated. No sure shots anymore. <laughs> no, 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 definitely no sure shots anymore. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I find. T- tell me a little bit about sort of your on your from your experience where so, this, it comes up most. Yeah, so I have to say, like I said, I do see the culture very much changing, even from five years ago. I think um, we represent a lot of public funds who are very open to um, suing in derivative actions. And I won't name names, but like you can actually just Google it and Google our firm and you'll see that a lot of um, public pension funds were resistant. I can like think of clients where I've had conversations with them and they said, oh, I can't go up against this company. Um, but I know I should. We had a board meeting. We do feel it's part of our fiduciary obligation, but we also don't want to be in the press going up against these companies. And, you know, at our firm, we've kind of tried to figure out um, creative ways to skin the cat, so to speak. So rather than full force litigating right away, there's other ways to do it, demand letters, things of that nature. I won't get too detailed, uh, you know, on this show, but there's other ways where you can um do things in, shall I say, a more quiet way. And I think if you approach clients with understanding that they, each client, each fund, whether it's public or private, has different um, sensitivities, that you can make this work. And that it, it, in the end, it is the be- it is benefit to everyone. And I've never had a client come back to me and say to me, I can't believe you got me into this. Just the opposite. They'll say, you know what, you did it the right way. Thank you. Um, but you have to be very sensitive to different clients and, and their sensitivities. So I, you know, I don't want to be too much of a social justice warrior, um, but maybe it's just my personal background and the way I look at this. But I think, you know, the investment management industry and the money industry, especially investment management, has a sort of a white shoe background in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and the defense side of the bar, as we know, has also got sort of a long-standing white shoe history. And there's sort of a gentility about the asset management business historically, right. uh, just as there has been a gentility in the bar. And the whole idea of the plaintiff's bar in the securities world is a bit of a, that sort of the upstart against that culture of gentility. Um, and the, there is a difference. This is, this is where the representing institution, institutional investors as opt-outs is really kind of a little bit different. There, there has been, because of this history, sort of an odor around what, the, what what's referred to as strike suits. And the idea is that, you know, all, all the firm that shall not be named or the former firm that shall not be named had to do was, you know, have a stable of, of clients who own five shares of a company. And anytime right. they saw a dramatic drop in the, in the stock, right. the, the suit gets filed. And that is right. not necessarily productive. But on the other hand, you know, when you have suits that are arise out of real frauds right and those are the things that is it that's what's required a serious fraud with a serious opportunity for recovery that's what's required to get an institutional investor interested in a case right and so the firms that bring that are, do, are doing a real valuable um, service 
both from a justice standpoint, but also from the standpoint of their investors. Now, the ability of a firm like AF&T or others to be sensitive to the political backdrop and to say, look, it's not a genteel idea, but it can be done in a genteel way. Um, you know, it sort of normalizes the practice. The thing that I worry about, and you and I have talked about this at various times in our, in our conversations, is if every institutional investor decided that it was going to opt out and insist on a 30% return instead of a 3% return, um, it would soon become impossible for the companies that had defrauded investors to stay in business. It just, yes. There's not enough money, although you know, when you see JP Morgan writing a check for $962 million to settle a spoofing claim, you sort of think, where is the bottom of the right, so that's bell right. in some of these places? But I do, so you know, that was, I kind of always worried about that. But so it's kind of good that firms are selective and you know, the public funds are selective about doing it and they do it in the serious cases. And that makes, that makes it so that um, it gets taken seriously and, and doesn't have necessarily the same cultural disapproval associated. Right. Well, I think it goes back to, and this is again something you and I have spoken about, just acting with integrity. And that's really how, you know, I try to approach everything. I think, uh, you know, lawyers at my firm do as well. And I think that's really how you have to have to look at it. Clients, institutional clients, as large as they are, there, is, there are people behind them. And that's how you have to approach it. They're not, they're not just funds who you can do anything with and make them sign at the dotted line. You really have to look at it as who's behind this fund and how am I really servicing them and making a valuable difference. And if I can't, then I'm not going to bring this case. And I think that's, I, I, I wish the plaintiff's bar um, would look at it like that. And I hope we're getting there. But that's, that's my guess, my hope. Um, so let's talk for a minute. I want to um, move on because I know that you had a huge credit career transition. Um, so you went from Oppenheimer, now you're teaching at Brown. Tell me a little about that. Uh, well, you know, leaving New York City and leaving Wall Street and leaving the career that I had been in for 35 years, I, I found myself surprisingly uh, with existential questions. Right. Um, you know, if, if you've defined yourself by your work for many years and then you stop working, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, who am I? And I think, you know, the way I answered that question ultimately was, who was I ever along the whole way? You know, if I thought that I was really the regional director of Philadelphia office of the SEC, or I was the general counsel of Oppenheimer, and that was my identity, then I had sort of uh, misunderstood myself because yeah. I was always a person and I had a role and a job. But rather than the job defining me, it, I want to think of myself as me defining the job. And so after I kind of got over that and thought, I'm still the same person, I'm still, I'm still me. Uh, and after I had traveled for surfing for six months and gotten bored, mm -hmm. uh, I, I knew I needed something that would keep me busy. Um, and the provost, the provost at Brown asked me if I would teach a class. And I said, what should I teach? And he said, I don't know, anything you want. I said, well, anything I know about is securities law. I said, okay, any course that has law in it will be really popular in the, in the Watson Institute. So well, that's what I set out to do. Uh, and what I discovered was actually that teaching, and then I became the pre-law advisor at Brown as well, which is what that legal expert in residence thing means on my, on my resume. Um, you know, it was very much related to being uh, an executive in law and being a manager and a leader in a legal department because it's about 
communicating. It's about helping people understand issues. It's about organizing information in a way that people can best absorb it. It's about creating an environment in which people learn, flourish, and thrive. And so I see a strong connection to that, but I see education as perhaps meaningful to me in a different way than the asset management industry was. I, I never, having worked at Vanguard in the SEC, I never particularly cared about money. I never thought that money for its own sake was a great thing. I thought that running a fund that would help people save for things that they cared about was a really valuable thing. Right. Uh, but I cared a lot less about, you know, was Oppenheimer's stock, was my, you know, was my equity value going up or down? I just, like, I couldn't care about the money side. Right. Um, I cared about people. And, and this is generally true. And the, what I learned in my experience on both sides is that people work hardest for stuff that they care about. Yes. Some people care about money, but by and large, that's not the most of the world. Most of the world wants to work on something that's stimulating and meaningful to them in, in whatever way that is. And so helping people connect to things that are meaningful for me is, is what really gets me excited and gets me working as hard for the 15 cents a year that I make it at Brown. <laughs> But it sounds like that's who you always were, right? As a manager, you were always, because I, I remember, um, you know, I honestly, I, I deal with so many GCs. I've never met a GC like you who really seemed to like care about the people that work for him, the people that you were gonna bring in to work for you. And it was really all about getting to know people um, professionally, but also personally to help bring out the best in them. I think that's like one of your biggest strengths. Well, there's a, I, I thought you were going to say, you know, my big career change was between the law firm and going to the SEC and going into career and legal management. Um, and that was really, Atara, the motivation for leaving the law firm was I, I had sort of really enjoyed when Deckard would send me the most problematic lawyers in the litigation area and say, help, help this person do something <laughs> productive, whether it's here <laughs> or somewhere else. Right. And, uh, and you're quite right. You know, I, look, a lot of this was based on my personal experience working at a law firm and feeling like I did not get the guidance or help that I needed in the way that right. I did it. The experience was not, I was not a natural born killer litigator. And, right. I, I, and I felt like my mentoring choices were not always good choices. And my mentors weren't always really healthy for my development. And so my, my vow as a manager was to try to be the manager that I always wish I had to emulate the best mentors and leaders that I had worked with and to try to avoid the things that, that made my work life miserable as a practitioner. Right. Um, and that, that was always really the goal and it's just a constant, constant study, but it, yeah, that's kind of the way I, I looked at things. Yeah, well, you know, you strike me and tell me if I'm wrong as a, as a big picture person. So how did you deal, how did you deal with the details of the law? Honey, I can't even see the little picture. That's how bad it is with me. <laughs> Yeah, I'm right there with you, which is why I feel so comfortable asking. <laughs> so look, at Deckard, it was great. Deckard had a rule. I was such a bad proofreader. I don't know if I ever told you this, but at Deckard, there was the Gabinet rule, which was that I was not allowed to be the last person to read a filing before it went out. <laughs> Deckard was really smart. Like, you know, the partners who, who really understood me knew that I had tremendous value because I was faster than almost anybody else at understanding an issue and writing about it in a coherent way. I was just really sloppy. Right. right. So understanding as a manager, you know, how to that learning that lesson that you play to people's strengths and then you shore them up by surrounding them with the people whose strengths are complementary. Right. And so as a manager who really saw the big picture, I knew the importance for me of 
being surrounded by people who really had the detail. And when you do what I did, which is you go to a job where you don't know the substance that well, right? You go to the SEC and you don't understand SEC practice. I went to the mutual fund industry in a Vanguard and Heidi Stam, who hired me, and she was the general counsel, said, I don't need another excellent mutual fund lawyer. I need somebody who could manage a bunch of mutual fund lawyers. You need to know what you can and can't do. And so you need people who can do the detail for you. Yes. And you, you pick the people so that your team is the same way. You know, you want a team of complementary strengths and mm -hmm. people who are the great technical people. But well, for example, I needed a really, really good administrative assistant to keep track of where I was <laughs> to, right. to make sure I was on time. Um, and in my team, I needed people who were really great at at um, get, you know, making sure that things got across the finish line appropriately. And when, you know, when I didn't know the difference between a cease and desist and an industry bar, I needed a team that would say to me, don't worry, we've got this covered and we'll prep you for the, for the um, SEC's private meeting where you're gonna get this case approved. Or they would say, don't, you know, don't you do it. You're not the one, let somebody right. else. You just have to know what your strengths and your weaknesses are. Yeah. Well, you're very good at that, Ari, because, and I think this is key, you don't have ego involved in it. So you're somebody who's able to say, you know, I don't know this, and I'm going to pass it on to somebody who does. I don't think everybody is as good at doing that as you are. If you've ever been humiliated by pretending that you know something when you don't <laughs> know it, you know, then, then you know that I, I look, I would rather not be humiliated by having my ignorance exposed, I would rather suffer the embarrassment of saying, I just I don't, don't know that. But I remember, you know, when I started at Oppenheimer, my predecessor at Oppenheimer Funds, Bob Zach, is probably the world's smartest mutual fund lawyer. He's just a fantastic mutual fund lawyer. An encyclopedia of the law, uh, Bob is and was. Um, and I knew that the fund boards had been, you know, they'd been accustomed to having somebody who you ask a question on the law um, anything having to do with the fund industry. And Bob, I know the answer right off the top of my head. And I had to say to them, you know, I'm not Bob, I'm something else. Uh, <laughs> right. And, you know, we instituted a practice in the board meetings that nobody answered questions off the cuff in a board meeting. Because often what would happen is you would answer the question and you would actually not really get the right result. Not because you didn't have the answer on the law, but because you were answering the wrong question. <laughs> and so, you know, that was my, my approach was, that's interesting. We'll think about it and get back to you before this board meeting is over. Um, but, you know, as someone who's so fast, I'm sure that that was a learned task for you, right? Well, you know where I learned how to say that? I learned yeah. that from my wife. I was just, oh, that was my next segue. I think, I, I think we, should, we should not only partner and surround ourselves at work with people who compliment us, but like that probably works in your marriage as well. I'm sure she's the opposite in many ways from you in, in those important respects that make your marriage so long-standing. Yeah, Chris is absolutely fantastic. She's an amazing human being. And it's funny because, you know, she's in such a very public role now as the president of the, of the university, but she was always, when we were young, really shy. And, oh. uh, you know, our, our roles have reversed in many ways. Uh, but what I've al I always respected about Chris that um, she is so measured and never gets herself into trouble by shooting off her mouth. And if you ask people who've known me for a long time what I was like as a young lawyer and what my, you know, what my failings were as a young lawyer, invariably it would be, you were just too effing fast, right? You <laughs> shot from the hip. I heard shot from the hip a lot of the time. 
And you know, Arthur Newbold, who was one of my mentors at Deckard, would say, you shot from the hip almost all the time, and luckily your aim was really good. Right. So most of the time it was okay, only every now and then. <laughs> but, but you could get into trouble that way. And I really did. I did learn from Chris the value of, especially when I took over you know, in the SEC and in places where I was not the substantive expert, to say, that's really interesting. Let me think about that. And also that stands you in good stead in a lot of ways when you become a manager, right? Because people will call you up, business people will call you up and say, what do you think about A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z? And the first thing that your your impulse is, I'm the answer man. I'll tell you what I think. And then it's, no, slow down. I have a team. So did you talk to Mary, Fred, Serena, right. or whoever? Because as a manager, you don't want to get ahead of your people. You want to make sure they're doing their jobs and you're doing right. your job. So the ability to slow down and be reflective, which is something that Chris always counseled me, is, dude, you need to slow down. Right. Um, yeah, and, and maybe also to empower the people around you, I think is what you're saying, to do what they do best means you sometimes have to take a back seat and think about it. So Tara, that's so true. And I hadn't actually thought of that as the corollary of what I'm saying, but it is absolutely the corollary um, that, that you, by, by answering the question and being the person that people go to all the time, you disenfranchise your team, which demoralizes your team right. and results in slower work. I remember when I was interviewing for the job at Oppenheimer and Art Steinmetz, who was then the head of uh, fixed income and ultimately became the CEO of Oppenheimer, said to me, well, what do you think you can do to get more productivity out of the legal team if you don't get more people? And my response was, you know, stop letting the GC be the bottleneck. Stop making everything pass through the GC. Bob, Bob was uh, a guy who liked to double check and make sure that he was comfortable with everything that his team was saying and it had a tendency to slow things down. Um, and you have to trust your people. They have to earn your trust, but you have to, you are absolutely right. You have to empower the people and not jump in front of them. So it's, there's a, a little bit of a double value of holding back and right. not jumping in all the time. You know, I recently interviewed for this podcast, uh, someone with your name again, Ari Mizell. He, he wrote an amazing book, which I think you'll love, called Less Doing. He wrote a, a few different books. But the, the premise behind his company that he has is um, that in order to really be at your most productive in a company, you really have to make yourself less um, more disposable than you think you are. Everyone thinks, you know, we're all so indispensable. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. You know, I'm running this company and I'm the only one. And he says, that's actually the biggest factor in holding back a company from growing. So you really need to work to empower everybody around you. And I'm, really I'm a subscriber to that. I, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I think, you know, Chris, Chris's mantra in managing her team at Brown is very similar. It's, you know, what I said to her was, just make sure you're doing not your job and not doing other people's jobs. And she says that to her team as well. Um, and you want to, I remember John Reed, who was the CEO of Citigroup, uh, I met him at Princeton once and he said, you know, if I can't go on vacation for a week and not pay attention, that means I haven't hired the right team. And it's very true, but people are, are often uncomfortable um, not being the center of the action, right. not having, you know, they're uncomfortable trusting. It's it's yeah. trust is a huge factor. And when you have an environment of trust, as you know, um, then your operations go much, much smoother. It's very true. So I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about you studying jazz guitar. Tell us about that. 
<laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I was brought up in one of those families where you had to play a musical instrument and it had to be the violin. <laughs> Oh, I tried that in my family here, but didn't go so well. Well, you know, those are different times. Um, I was brought up in the 17th century. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, I love popular music, and then in college, I, I was introduced to jazz. I, so I, my, my mother made me take violin lessons, but I taught myself how to play the guitar, and I always wanted to learn how to play jazz. Once I started listening to jazz in college, I always wanted to be able to play. I just never really had the time to learn, <clears throat> because finding a half an hour as you know, to do anything besides either work or take care of your children or make sure that your spouse is happy is very hard when you're a, a two-career couple. Right. Um, so when I, when I retired, I decided that I was gonna start studying jazz. So I did two things. I, I started building guitars in a studio here in, in Providence and I decided to take jazz guitar lessons. And my teacher told me, you know how to read music for the violin. You won't ever completely speak the language of music if you don't learn to read. So I forced myself to learn to read music on the guitar. Um, and it's slow and painful. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, um, very right brain. I'm a creative. I'm not my brain. I don't do math well. I don't do. So getting memorizing and learning all of the theory that's important to learn how to play jazz is a challenge for me. So I kind of do it inductively. You know, my teacher, he was just here right, right before we sat down to talk to each other. Um, but he's stuck with me through three and a half years so far. And my approach to taking his theory and then learning it in my impressionistic way has paid off because, you know, the goal that I set for myself to be able to sit down in front of a lead sheet, which just has the chords and the melody and to improvise uh, a whole orchestration on the guitar, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I can do that. And it's, Super satisfying. You know, my mother told me when I was little, someday you'll be glad you learned to play the violin. And, <laughs> and here you are. You know, may she rest in peace. She was right. <laughs> they always are. Moms are always right. So I think you need to join a band. Like, that's nuts, right? On your first yes, time. and I have tremendous amount of stage fright, but playing with a band is great because I always think that people will hear others' mistakes instead of mine. <laughs> right, exactly. You'll just get swallowed in there. You'll be fine. Well, Ari, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I mean, oh, Tara, I miss you. I'm sorry that we haven't been able to see each other in person for so long. I know, ridiculous, right? But hopefully, this ends one day soon, hopefully. or we'll do a so we'll do a social distance coffee or something. Okay, I'm up for that. <laughs> but it's been really, absolutely, so much. Your wealth of information in so many different ways and areas. So it's it's really amazing to speak with you always. So thank you for coming on. It's an honor.